0: Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Darrawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the Convo Couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone and welcome to Rights for Women. I've just had the most fantastic conversation with Dr Anita Heiss, who is my guest today on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Anita is a proud member of the Wiradjuri Nation of central New South Wales, but was born in Guttagal country and has spent much of her life on Dharawal land near La Perouse. She's one of Australia's most prolific and well-known authors, publishing across genres, including non-fiction, historical fiction, commercial fiction and children's novels. Her memoir, Am I Black Enough For You?, first published in 2012, was recently republished. Her latest adult fiction, is the first book to ever have an Indigenous title as the main title of the book with the English title, which is River of Dreams, and I'm not even going to attempt to say the Indigenous title. I'm going to leave that up to Anita during the the chat. And her latest children's book is Kuri Princess. This year she edited the anthology Growing Up Wiradjuri, which was released in September, and as you'll hear in the chat, she is now, as this is published, in Paris doing a thousand words a day at 59 different libraries but more about that in the podcast. Anita has also recently seen the debut of the stage play Titters based on her novel which came out in 2014 of the same name. The list of Anita's achievements and creations and the roles she has taken on over the course of her career absolutely mind-boggling and you can find them all on her amazing website. But I've asked Anita on today to talk about her books and writing life, which are, of course, inseparable from her heritage as a First Nations woman. She has been on the podcast before a number of years ago when she spoke to Kel Butler, my previous co-host, about writing commercial women's fiction. But in this chat, we're focusing on Anita's body of work and her writing across so many genres and finding out what's at the heart of her writing. So grab a cuppa and join Anita Heiss and I on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Anita, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Mandangu, Thank you. You actually were on quite a few years ago now with my previous co-host and you were talking about plotting. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that episode is still available for anyone out there listening. You can tune into that as well. So Fabulous to have you on. And I'd love to start by talking about Titus because that is, I think, your most recent sort of thing that's out in the world. Yeah. And it has been transformed from a novel, from fiction, into drama, into a stage play. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what it was like to see that brought to life on the stage?
1: Well, can I start by saying it was probably the most challenging writing experience of my professional career, but also one of the most fulfilling as well. So I was asked by uh, Nadine McDonald-Dowd from then at QPAC and Sonia Simic, who was then with Le Bois the a cultural producer there, creative producer there, if I wanted to adapt the novel Titters, which came out in 2014, to theatre. And it made sense because we're in Brisbane and it's a very Brisbane novel. It's been described as a love letter to Brisbane. And so I had no idea, I had no aspirations ever to write for the theatre and I had no idea what I was doing. Obviously, I go to the theatre and going to the theatre and watching a piece of, watching a performance, I now have so much greater respect for everything that goes on behind the scenes because we just go and enjoy it. So what happens is, you know, the difference with writing fiction and theatre is in the novel, as your listeners and yourself will know, is you write all the details. you write what the character can see, what they can smell, what they touch, what they taste, what they think, and so forth. You can write a novel without dialogue but a play is pretty much all dialogue. It's the show and don't tell. So I had to learn how to turn the novel into literally dialogue. And it took me many drafts to finally understand what I was actually supposed to be doing. And I was so tied to the... Original story that at one point Nadine, who was my dramaturg, said to me, "I don't want to see that novel in here again." I had all these sticky things in there going. She "Don't bring that here." And you're allowed to actually create new material and so forth. And then you learn from the actors because the actors bring their own experience and their own wisdoms to each of their characters. And I had no idea that they go right into the backstory and they think about the characters that they've been allotted or chosen. Yeah. Um, you know they think about why would the character be sitting here? what was what is their backstory? So it was really fascinating to be in the rehearsal room as well uh, to see all that unfold. But for me, one of the challenges was when you're writing a novel, it's you and your editor and possibly your publisher might give you some feedback. When you're in this space, you've got your dramaturg, the creative producer, maybe the artistic director of the company. Then all the actors want to give you feedback on their character, so it's quite confronting because kind you not know, yours anymore, is it? Really, it's it's a collaborative. It is, and I can tell you, I'm not a team player, so I was. A, but it was so joyful, and then to see the first dress rehearsal, I. At the last scene, I just was so overwhelmed with emotion because what the actors had done and the set was extraordinary and all the lighting and the music, it just brought together the meaning of the novel. And I just sobbed and sobbed. And interestingly, we had a fantastic season as part of the Brisbane Festival. And I would walk out, I went to nearly every single show, and women would just be crying. And that's the difference in theatre is you see the immediate reaction of audiences to your work. And so that was quite extraordinary. And I said, I'm never writing another play because it's quite challenging. And Jane Harrison, who came on as a dramaturg as well, she said, Yeah, you just wait to opening night and closing night when you're getting standing ovation and then tell me you're not going to write another. <laughs> play. It's a really different experience, a beautiful experience. have
0: you changed your mind could you potentially write another play not
1: just yet not just yet but it's not completely off the table now
0: excellent excellent and will that be touring anita is it going to be coming to other places I
1: will tell you, first of all, I never had a dream to write a play and then I didn't have a dream for it to tour, but of course all that changed and we'd love that. It's a big cast um, and of course most of the cast are First Nations, so it requires actors on the ground or it's quite expensive to bring people in and eight, four weeks of rehearsals and three or four weeks of, pl- of the play and so forth, and we had quite a stunning set. So that all impacts whether or not theatres can take it. There's conversations. There's been some conversations with the theatre in Sydney, so hopefully we might get it up in Sydney, which would be wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, I yeah. hope so. I'd love to be able to see it. It would be fantastic. I think there's a little theatre down your way called Anita, isn't it? In there Th- is.
0: There's Anita's oh. Theatre, which is actually they have a lot of great bands and things on. Yeah. All
1: right. Is it, it Carmel? Where is that? It's at Theroux. Theroux. So,
0: it's a gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's all like art deco and they've kept oh, all the oh,
1: Maybe we could just do a reading in Thrill. Oh, yes, nice.
0: please. Yes, please. But you do write across a lot. You have written across a lot of genres, Anita, in both nonfiction and fiction and then so many different genres within the fiction range. But can you talk a little bit about how your ideas come to you and then how do you decide, decide then once you get a spark of an idea, then what form it will take? What's, what's that creative process like for you?
1: It's interesting because... A few years ago, I gave a conf- I gave a keynote at a uh, Australian bookseller's dinner in Melbourne. And the theme of the conference was conversations. And it was quite easy for me to pull something together because when I thought about that, I realised, when I thought about the theme, I realised that many of my books are born out of conversations. So, I the conversations that I've overheard. For example, Yira and a Deadly Dog Demon was... The idea for that novel came from a conversation I overheard between an American tourist and an Australian on a flight to LA talking about real Australians and so forth. And, yeah, there's conversations about me. That have triggered some works. For example, I loathe to mention his name, but Andrew Bolt writing a conversation about me that I wasn't part of became part of Am I Black Enough for You? I was on the phone to David Rankin, who's an Australian artist married to author Lily Brett, and I was in Manhattan, I was staying in their loft. And I said, I need to write a novel set here. And that became Manhattan Dreaming. There's other moments I have observations. I never have to sit down and think, what am I going to write? So if I think about Billy Yadadangalang Duray, which is a novel about the great flood of Gundagai, I had that idea when I watched the unveiling of the statues of yari and Jackie in Gundagai in 2017. And I'm watching that on online. I'm thinking, how is it that the nation doesn't know about these Wiradjuri heroes, these national heroes? And how don't they know about the great flood of Gundagai? So that I knew that I was writing an I was going to write a novel. I'd been commissioned to write a novel set in the 19th century on Wiradjuri country, but I had no idea what the story was going to be. So I go, there's my opening. Six months later, I start learning my language in Wagga and I go, right, I'm going to put as much of the language into the novel as possible as a reminder to readers that everywhere they walk in Australia, they walk on land that has a first language and it's not English. And then my novels today are about always through my lens as a contemporary Koori woman, and living in Yagura country now. And I, I want all of them have a purpose all of the stories have a purpose a greater goal of imparting knowledge of sharing history and about and life in contemporary Australia through my lens and depending on the story whether that will determine whether it's a kid's novel so I've just released Courier Princess through Magabala so is it a kid's novel is it going to be an historical novel like barbed wire and cherry blossoms and which I had the idea for that at Pearl Harbour and that's about World War II and the cara breakout or whether it's not it's going to be a memoir for example and my black enough for you. I haven't actually written a lot of non-fiction. I am on my way to Paris. I will be doing 59 libraries in 59 days oh. and 59,000 words, so I will document something around that. Every book has sprung from an observation or a conversation of yeah. some kind.
0: Yeah. And it's fantastic that you've never felt confined by a box in terms of I have to stick with this genre, or, I have to stay in in this lane. I think it's wonderful that you've branched out and just whatever has taken your creative inspiration at the moment that's what you've gone with
1: oh can i tell you i would if i just want thank you first for that um really the goal has always been just to find the genre i just need to find one that i feel comfortable doing well and i don't know i really like writing historical fiction it's such hard work it's like a phd i really like writing kids fiction for me, it's much easier. Writing 12,000 words and stuff so is so much easier than 130,000 words and making sure you've got as much authenticity and use the facts around history in the most genuine way you can.
0: I think just keep going
1: with the cross-genre stuff. It's fantastic.
0: <laughs> Once you start on a project, so let's take, for instance, Billa, Okay, I'm going to let you say the, the title of the book. Mm-hmm.
1: Billa Duray. And I'll just explain it. So, Billa means river. Yarodang means dream. Galang is the plural, so having many dreams. Okay. And Duray is the action of having the many dreams. Okay. Yes, wow. it's quite, our grammar system is quite difficult and unique, I should say.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. But so, when, for instance, you started, that is a historical novel. And as you say, I imagine there must have been a huge amount of research that you had to do. When you sat down to actually start writing the story, what's your process, Anita, in terms of your writing? Are you a daily writer? Do you have word counts? How do you get from the beginning to the end, basically?
1: Okay. I will say that for all of my novels, whether it's historical novel or chick little kids novels, and all of them have the same process, and that is I start with a synopsis, and I learnt that very late in life. So if you're a writer and you you want some tips Write your synopsis first because when you can clarify in that synopsis what the story is about right through to the ending, then actually plotting the story and writing the story and researching the story is that much easier. So I start with a synopsis. Maybe it's a page, maybe it's 300 words, a thousand words, 300 words, bring it back to 25 words for the lift pitch in case you're in the lift with the head honcho of Simon Schuster. Then I'd go through my character breakdowns, who are the key characters, all the idiosyncrasies and what do they wear, what do they look like. Then I do my research, as much as my research in the field and desktop as possible to do my research. And then I'll map it out. I'll plot it all out. And you, as we've mentioned, there's a podcast I'm plotting. Yep. So I map the whole story out. Then I fill in the gaps with more research. I get feedback on relevant pages. If I've mentioned living people, I, I try to give them an opportunity always to check what I've written about them or language I'll get that checked so I use the same process I am a daily I work in chunks of time I'm not someone who'll get up one day a week and do it I will set aside a week or two weeks or a month or six weeks like with Paris and every day I will write and I will set I'll never write more than five hours a day because I did read back in the 90s when I was doing my PhD I read something about in terms of a PhD if you do five solid hours a day. That's about the best that your brain can manage. So I stuck with that with my writing. So I'll I'll write, I'm an early morning writer. So I'll get up in early morning. I said a word limit or count or debt goal. I aim for 2,000 words plus. I write fast. But what I'll tell you, particularly for your listeners, is that if you have done the research and if you have mapped the book out, then the writing comes quite easy because you already know if you get stuck in chapter two, you've got what's going to happen in chapter 14. So you could skip up there and then come back. That's what I normally do. And I will say the best investment I've ever made and a tip for your listeners as well, is the best advice I got back with my first novel was to get a structural edit done. So I got a structural edit done on Not Meeting Mr. Wright, which was my first adult novel. And I had sent it off to Random House originally in my first draft. And they said, this is about three drafts away from what we would normally publish. And I had no idea. So I was so grateful Just for that advice, I sent it to Nicola O'Shea for a structural edit. I did everything she suggested I do. And then when I resubmitted it, it went to four publishers. When I resubmitted it, Random took it. And it was almost ready for publication. So my advice is that is the best investment I've ever made. So I sent Avoiding Mr. Wright to her as well. And her her advice back to me was, "An editor, you don't have to take on board everything I say because your publisher, your editor might have a different idea. And so I went, you know what? I'm just going to take on board what I like. And then I submitted that. And everything that the publishing house wanted me to change was everything that- yeah. A lesson learned there. Cause what I did is I wasted a whole lot of time anyway, sort of just done because that's their job. Their job is to help you structure the story the best it can be. Not necessarily change your words or your intent, but help you structure it. So that's my tip. I send all I send everybody to Janet Hutchinson now. She's worked as a structural editor on most of my most recent books and I she's brilliant. Okay. Do that before you yeah. send your book off.
0: Great advice. And as you say, and you're paying in terms of money, but it's saving you so much time and getting you closer to where you need to be to pitch it. it yeah,
1: it's an investment. Yeah, absolutely.
0: For for sure. Let's just talk a little bit about your memoir in Am I Black Enough for You, which was recently republished. And I've recently read fabulous to actually really just see the whole of your career mapped out that way in that memoir. And you said this, I want to use my published words across genres as a vehicle for asserting my individual and communal identity to instill pride in others and to help non-Aboriginal people better understand us. I hope in turn that we can all then improve our understanding of ourselves and our collective Australian identity. So can you talk a little bit, Anita, about how your culture and heritage have informed your writing, both in terms of reacting to people's perceptions of you and also in terms of the messages that you want to get across through your
1: writing? It's the reacting thing which is interesting in that question for me because I was socialised as an Aboriginal person as a child in primary school, which you would have read, being told by non-Indigenous people in very racist ways who I was, that I was black. And I wasn't until I was 38, Around, I think I was 38, doing a radio interview, possibly around not meeting Mr. I or one of those books, that I realised that, that uh, much of my writing to that date was in reaction to the stereotypes around Aboriginality and how we were supposed to be and look and behave and the things we aspired to and so forth. So over the course of my writing and my teaching career, so I did lots of work in schools in, from primary right through to year 12, I saw huge gaps in the knowledge in the classroom, not just of students, but of, of teachers themselves, which was more distressing. And I saw a need to provide stories and resources to help break down those stereotypes around identity and who we are, particularly in the 21st century. And I used and I continue to use as my life, my own life experiences about growing up off Wiradjuri country, born and bred in Gadigal country, raised on Bidjul country out near La Perouse. I've always known who I am. I've known who my mob are and learning what I should have been my first language. At the age of 50 also gave me a deeper sense of culture, but also a deeper desire to educate and form, engage, and bring others into the stories of place and purpose and power, because having cultural knowledge uh is having is being empowered. So for me, I use my particularly my fiction. Because I book clubs read novels, and they say I think there's a I don't know if you've heard this. There's some saying or statistic. An author said this, I think, that if all if women stopped reading, eighty percent of fiction would die.
0: Oh, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. yeah, women from I think about forty up are the highest demographic for buying books.
1: Yeah, and I can tell you, I have get invited to speak at lots of book clubs. None of them are book clubs with men. If how's the best? How can I best reach women? or readers issues and themes and helping them to understand in a non-confrontational way, which which reading provides. Theatre less so because you're in a space with other people and reactions are obvious. And so I try to use my novels in particular and kids' novels to get as many messages out as possible and information that is meant for the public domain. And also for your listeners who are thinking about writing in the space, you may research, you may be told things It doesn't mean that everything that you learn about Indigenous culture in this country is for the public domain or for you to share publicly. So if you are working in that space, be sure and check with whoever you're working with that they're happy for the information they give you to be used in the public domain.
0: Yeah, yeah, good advice. And while we're on that, Anita, and I know that you do talk about this in Emma Black Enough for you and it's something that comes up, I've had numerous conversations about this in writing circles, about the issue of non-Indigenous Writers writing First Nations or Indigenous characters, and there there are varying opinions about that. But what's your take on that? What would you suggest for listeners who maybe have a story which involves some First Nations characters?
1: You are correct in saying there are very diverse views on this. I'm going to start by saying, if you believe you are writing the great Australian novel, then you cannot write it without including First Nations Australia, because anywhere you set that novel is on unceded country that has people and stories and language and culture and dance and song and history. So every novel set in Australia has that, and it needs to acknowledge that. So you can't write the great Australian novel without that, mm. in my view. I'm sure all those Australian authors that have run the Miles Franklin or won lots of awards without First Nations content will argue that's my position.
0: Yeah, I had a little bit of a conversation with that recently with Holly Ringland and her in both the Lost Flowers of Alice Hart and her recent book Seven yeah. Sins of Esther Wilding, and she actually does use the correct. Indigenous place names and refers to it quite often. And when I asked her about that recently, she said, she will always, as you said, include that in her books because she doesn't want to be part of the whitewashing of Australian.
1: Holly's amazing and I'm glad that you had that conversation with her and I love her work. I would also say people should read Alex Miller, Journey to the Stone Country, one of, close to the great Australian novel. I would say Kate Granville, Secret yeah. River. Yeah, and but the flip side is I would say if you have no pre-existing or little no or little relationship or experience of First Nations Australia, then you should probably steer clear of it altogether rather than trying to do something tokenistic or half-assed or whatever. I have so many people who contact me about having finished their manuscript and now they they want to slot in a black character somewhere. That's not how it works. If you are going to do it properly within your synopsis and within your research and within your mapping out of your book, all that needs to be inclusive, right? so that it has meaning and purpose, not because you're wanting to tick a box and do potentially do the right thing, because having this tokenistic character that has no real relationship with anybody else is not doing it properly.
0: And what about in terms of, because I have had this with particularly one of my students who I teach writing and one of my students wrote a fantastic YA book. The main character, however, was uh, Indigenous and she's not. That, that's been a bit of a red flag in publishing circles. What's your take on that?
1: Oh, it depends on, I know I I have people in my world, like a lot of my writing buddies in Brisbane in particular, are non-Indigenous people who are around Blackfellas all the time, who have relationships with Blackfellas. I think it's about what is your, there's a few things there, what is your intent? Mm. What is your actual experience, life experience? I think, I don't know that many people could do it well unless they've done it in some kind of partnership. And I think I would, my questions as a publisher would have been like, how are you informed? How have you been informed to be able to, what informed this character? What experiences have you had? And why are you making this character your main character, an Indigenous person? Yeah. Is it? I think it's asking the, the author always why. And they need to be able to clarify that for themselves. What is your purpose? What is your intent? Is the character empowered? I had somebody email me about one of their characters. And it was YA. One of their characters was Indigenous and came from a broken home and all this dysfunction. And I just lost my shit. I'm mm-hmm. like, why can't the white character come from dysfunction? Yeah, yeah. Why are you creating a character? Feeds into the stereotypes. When I I ran a workshop in Melbourne, like years ago, about for this about wanting people, white people, wanting to write Indigenous characters, and I said one side of the whiteboard, write all the stereotypes you've ever heard about black people. I kid you not, I saw things I hadn't even heard of before. I was shocked, and I thought I'd heard everything. And then on the other side, I said, let's write all the positive stereotypes that we know about Indigenous Australia. And so I said see this bad side, you don't need to do any of that. Mm. That's done to death. The media does that. Let's change the narrative and why is it only Indigenous people are writing about us coming, working and living and just being in positions of excellence, excellence, which is what I see every day from school kids right through to CEOs and so forth. So I think non-Indigenous authors really need to look at Themselves and the way that they view Indigenous Australia today, because if they, because this because we all write through a lens, we all read through a lens, and you, people need to be conscious of that. And I will, I would say to readers, if you want to read YA with Indigenous characters, you need, read books by Blackfellas. Yeah. We've got over seven thousand published Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island authors. You, you need to be reading our work first and foremost. Not yeah. to say that we don't do it. You need to be reading our books. Looking at us through our lenses.
0: Yeah, I love that chapter in your memoir where you've got the 20 reasons for reading Black, and it's great. I'm still catching up, but I've read quite a few books by Indigenous authors. And there's, when I read that, I thought, wow, yes, there's all these yeah. reasons, and we just need to promote it more. Because as Thank you me. say, there's so many out there, like 7,000 published authors to choose from. Oh, sure. yeah. I often
1: say, I do a lot of teacher PD, and I'm like, I, can, I pride myself on being able to find almost a book or a poem, a novel, a play, a memoir on almost any subject hmm. that is written by or co-written in a collaboration with an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander author. True. So it's possible. Awesome. People need to check out Black Words on Auslit.
0: Black Words, Auslit. I'm going to put these links in the show notes okay. for everyone. Yeah. Getting on to another issue that comes up in writing circles that we've all experienced, probably, if you're listening out there. One of your early books, Anita, Sacred Cows, was rejected multiple times before being picked up by Magbala Books and published in 1996. And that whole rejection process is part of the riding life but it can be very crippling and it can yeah. stop people riding it can stop you pursuing that that goal or that dream what advice would you give to riders out there who may have experienced rejection or maybe experiencing it and a feeling what's the point
1: you're absolutely right. It is It is heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> like, like when you get the bad review and you're like, oh, it's so heartbreaking because we all know how much work we put into whatever the project is, right? I would say first and foremost, everything is subjective. So whoever's reading your work, is, it's all subjective. So someone might go, get through two pages, someone might absolutely love it. So it's not personal. It's never personal. Again, everybody's reading. They're all reading through lenses. And publishers are about making money, right? So they're also looking... A lot of publishers are looking for, are we going to, is this going to turn us a profit? All right. I always used to have this argument, authors are writing because you want to change the world and we have all these beautiful things you want to say and publishers are going, oh, can we make some money? Not all of them. It's a business. So don't don't take it personally. What I will say is like not meeting Mr. Wright was my first break. Into commercial publishing, and that was sent to four publishers. I think I mentioned I only needed, and I'd already had the I'd already had the structural edit done. And Larissa Edwards at Random House took the book, and that, and I, as I mentioned, that edit I know made the difference. Okay, but what I would say to your authors is, do the homework. See what is already in the marketplace. See, know what publishers are publishing the kind of book that you are writing or have written. Read their websites about what they're accepting and in what format. Do not submit something that they're not asking for. Waste of time, waste of paper, waste of energy, waste of money, okay? Don't jazz it up on pink pages. Stick to what they want, whatever, whatever double-sided, whatever they want, synopsis for chapters. I would not send anything to a publisher that I hadn't finished because if you send off your first three chapters and they love it and they're like, where's the rest of it? You're screwed. Finish the manuscript first. Get your get your structural report done in your cover letter to the publisher. Tell them what's enclosed. Have your synopsis if that's what they ask for. Let them know that you've had a structural report done and by whom. Now, I've got to give some hard love to your listeners because the thing is I don't know why. Of all the art forms and of all the careers and all the skills in the world, writing seems to be the one that everybody thinks they can do. (laughs) You know, they don't like, oh, everyone's a writer. We can't all be plumbers. We can't all be forklift drivers. We can't all fly planes, but apparently everyone can write a novel. It's not the case. And it's also not the case that everybody wants to read your story. As horrible as that sounds, yes, everyone has a story. But why does someone have to read yours, okay? And if you're not a reader, why do you think someone will read your book? Because I can't tell you how many people will say oh, they want to write a book. I've got a story. Want to write a book? And I go, okay, what are you reading at the moment? Oh, I don't read. I oh, know that freaks
0: me up.
1: <laughs> why, the, why the hell would someone read your book if you can't be bothered reading someone else's book? So it's important to understand that. I'd love to sing, but for some reason. I can't, but everybody thinks everyone can write, and I'm really sorry to say this, but if you, while it is subjective at a publishing level, if you if you send your manuscript out to 20 publishers and they don't buy it or whatever, and you've done all the right things, then maybe it, maybe writing isn't your gig. Having said that, we all know that Harry Potter, okay, Rowling sent her manuscript to everybody and got turfed down, and then look at the phenomenon. But that I think that's quite rare. Yeah, definitely.
0: And maybe it's not the right thing at that time. Maybe you'll write something else and that will be the thing that, that you find a publisher for.
1: Absolutely. I think also for some people writing, I think we look at Holly, we look at Tara June Winch, and I absolutely believe they've got the gift, mm. right? I think, and then there's people like me who have a really small vocab who have to work really hard. I think you have. there are people who have a gift, there are people who work really hard. It is long hours of practice. It's like It is like learning an instrument. You just don't sit down and play it. It You have lessons and do the PD and so forth like that.
0: The next thing I wanted to ask you about, Anita, was this whole idea of genre versus literary fiction. 2007, you released Not Meeting Mr. Wright. It was followed in 2008 by Avoiding Mr. Wright, and then two books, Manhattan Dreaming and Paris Dreaming, which were classified, I guess, at the time, which is a term we don't tend to use now in the industry, but Chicklit, which now what's used i think it's just women's fiction or goes into romance or whatever but yeah chicklit seems to be out for some reason rom-coms if they've got a bit of humor in them rom-com that's definitely a particular genre and a couple of questions around that was writing that particular genre a deliberate move to you for you to get into that part of the publishing world and then how do you feel because you do talk a little bit about this in am i black enough for you too this kind of divide between genre fiction and literary fiction and some of the snobbery, I guess, that's in the industry about people who write genre fiction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was a strategy. I remember lying down River Beach reading over a summer, all my favourite, some of my favourite, and unfortunately now not with us, authors like Rosie Scott and Georgia Blaine. And I was like, I just love their novels. And But I never saw women like me. So there was a strategy about writing women like me in the city, not though they write literary fiction. I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know I was writing genre fiction. I was learning. But the strategy was in choosing to write commercial women's fiction was to reach audiences that weren't previously engaging with Aboriginal Australia in any format, either personally or professionally or even subconsciously. And it is the non-Indigenous female market that obviously is my key audience because there's not enough of us as blackfellas to sustain any large publishing venture at uh, least of all an entire genre. Now, with that in mind, I did make the conscious decision to move into the area of commercial women's fiction, as you've mentioned, and I did four books in five years called back, back then, as we say, Chick Lit, or as my friends at Curry Radio 93.7 FM called it, Chocolate, because the main characters were all blackfellas. Yep. And I made no secret back then and even now of my intentions in penning, so not meeting Mr. Iott, right, avoiding Mr. Iott, right, Manhattan Dreaming and Paris Dreaming. But I did hear whispers, interestingly, that I was dumbing down. This is where the offensive, the offense to the author and the reader comes in. I was dumbing down my writing and betraying readers of my serious work. But those who criticize the genre, they miss the point of the efforts that I've made as a First Nations writer in Australia to broker new relationships, new publishing ground and enter an incredibly difficult space as a minority in mainstream publishing because I can tell you I don't know how many, if any, romance books still today have black women or men in them. And I've spoken at the Romance Writers Australia conference about this many years ago about diversity in Australian romance writing. So I'd hazard a guess that there are more Aboriginal women now reading my novels than reading any Indigenous authored academic books, unless they are working in academia themselves. Now, in terms of that literary divide, all fiction is fiction. Right. I hate this hierarchy, this literary hierarchy where, where Westerns is on the bottom of the rung of the ladder, the literary ladder. And Chick Lit, is, where nobody writes Westerns anymore. I've got a book coming out in July next year through Audible called Rodeo Dreaming. Said it, Pasha <laughs> said it. Yeah, it was so much fun. I always wanted to go to a rodeo. Yeah. But we I unpack a whole lot of things about cruelty to animals in that as well. But there's romance and sex and fun and so forth. But so Western's at the bottom and romance, just the one rung above that. Um and your readers will probably understand this that if Jane Austen was the original chick lit author, yeah. if she published now her books, and it's been this has been in the press, her books would be They have pink covers and sparkles and so forth and they would look like romance books today. The reality is people read differently. We don't all read the same way. All reading matters. And I think by dissing a genre, and I have been in at the Sydney Writers Festival some years ago and sat in a space with hundreds of people with an Australian author just trashing romance going, oh, I think she was introduced as a romance writer and she lost her shit. She was, I am not a romance writer. I've never been so offended. And by doing that, she offended every romance writer and every reader of romance in the room. So I think when you diss a genre, whatever that genre is, you are disrespecting the craft of writing, you're disrespecting the author and you're disrespecting the reader of that work all in one punch. And I think we need to be really careful about judging the way and what people read.
0: Yeah, no, I agree 100% with everything you said. And hopefully that message is starting to filter out, but sure. I don't know, we'll see. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about more about your experience of learning your own language and then using that in the writing of Villa Yaradungalundere. That was completely wrong. But, yeah, can you talk about what that experience was like for you in as somebody who for the first time really was learning your traditional language and then being able to put that into your writing?
1: Interestingly, as I've mentioned, I didn't start learning my language till I was 50, literally 50 that year. And I was in a position of both, I was in a privileged position because I was in a space on country learning by Dr. Uncle Stan Grant, all his protégés, all his Wiradjuri protégés in a space with other Wiradjuri people, but non-Indigenous people as well, and other Elders. But there was a, a real, I had to acknowledge that I was in a privileged space because I'm in a tertiary institution supported by a university, learning a language that my mother, who was born on a Rambi mission in Kowra, and all my family born in Brungle, were not allowed to speak mm. and did not Okay, so that was, there were moments of tears around that with that understanding that absolute privilege when it shouldn't be a privilege. But also I felt so grateful that I could learn and be able to share that. And so, um, for your listeners who don't know, *Billy Ada Dangalung Duray was the first commercial novel in Australia to have to not have an English title, mm. to have a have an Aboriginal language as a title, Wiradjuri language as a title, with the English translation on the back. So that had never happened before. It's all very exciting, but also a reminder that it was 2021 when that happened. I've so, it it's a-
0: anyone, anyone watching it's on video, yes, yeah, you can see the gorgeous cover there.
1: Yeah, so it's a it's and the goanna on the cover, and the cover you can't judge a book by cover, we know that. But the cover is meant to demonstrate or speak to the contents. We've got a beautiful gugar up there, a goanna that my cousin Lukey Penrith did. We've got the that's our totem. We've got the cockatoo, white cockatoo, which is the totem of the late Kerry Reed Gilbert, who's a very close friend of mine, and so that's the totem of the mother in the novel, and that is. That's an actual picture of the Murrumbidgee and Murrumbidgee Billa. And for me, being able to share language in that novel is extraordinary. And of course, it's a fantastic reading by Tamala Shelton. So people can actually listen to the novel and follow along. And it's, as again, I mentioned, I wanted I want readers to, un, to be reminded that everywhere they walk in Australia, they walk on land that has a language. So all my novels from here on in will be the same. We'll have all that. The original novel for Titters was twenty fourteen, but we got to because of the play. We're updating. I was I was able to weave some language into the play as well, and I had interestingly people from Wagga who came up, and Griffith and Bathurst were Adju people, and they as well walking out. I didn't know everybody. Obviously, I knew lots of people, but they were singing out as a game upstairs in language and so forth. And we need to see ourselves in the Australian narrative, mm. and then it's inclusive of language as well.
0: Yeah, because language is such a crucial part of identity, isn't it? It's
1: a part. I think we it's a very it's an important part. It's a, it's an it's a part that we were denied mm. through policies of assimilation and under acts of protection, where children were removed and meant to start behaving white and be more like white people because bad people were Black people and good people were white people and language was, an ex- was a demonstration of being black.
0: Do you think that's just looking maybe towards the next decade of publishing from First Nations authors? We've and We've talked about how many there are and there's so many award-winning yeah. books, but do you think that's the direction that Indigenous writing will take, You incorporating
1: more language? Or what, where do you see that going? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a renaissance in Indigenous literature now, First Nations literature now. I think we've got so many... Our voices are being sought after in a whole range of areas. And I think there's also strong language reclamation happening across the country. We're in the international, the United Nations International Decade of Indigenous Languages, which started this year. So over the next 10 years, internationally, the profile and awareness and support for language maintenance is happening. At the idea to have a non-Indigenous author approached me at an event and saying, oh, I want to, I'm so glad you put that on your title because I want to use language on the title of my book. And I was like, why? Yes. I have a reason. It's my language. So I, I feel like I'm going to have to do some more publisher PD around this because it's not an open slather for, again, non-Indigenous people appropriating any part of our culture that they think will sell their work. Yes. That's not what it's about. It's about, again, what's the intent, what's the purpose, and what is your relationship to that? Mm. Mm.
0: Fabulous. It's been such a joy to talk to you. I do have just two more quick questions for you, Anita. Um, You do mention Oprah as a great role model in your memoir, and I fully endorse that because I think Oprah is so amazing on so many levels. But apart from Oprah and including Oprah, who else would you say have been kind of role models for you, particularly in your writing?
1: Oh, okay. Role models. And I mentioned Rosie Scott, a great Australian literary novelist. She was a playwright as well, but with an enormous sense of self social justice. So I met Rosie on this on the board of the Australian Society of Authors. She was the chair at the time and mentored me through writing and also through the organization. I would say I'm inspired by obviously my two greatest inspirations in my world and in. Particularly from a, as a young writer or young, my first book came out when I was twenty-eight. But youngish yeah. uh, would be Ujiru Noonakul, the late Ujiru Noonakul, who wrote the first published the first book of poetry by a First Nations person in nineteen sixty-four. We are going, and the late Ruby Langford Ginnaby mm. and you know who published her first autobiography when she was fifty in nineteen eighty-eight. Don't take your love to town, and that was on the New South Wales High School Certificate for oh gosh, about a decade. And both those authors, well, if I talk about Arnie Ruby, she really pushed the boundaries in Australian publishing by saying straight up to her editor, do not dubberise my text. And what she meant was do not sanitise my text for a white audience. So her words on the page were very much what she spoke. And so much so, it was very conversational, so much reviewers criticised it because it's not being literary enough. But her work changed the landscape in Australian publishing I believe and of course the late ujy Nunuckle was an activist a poet a children's author an essayist she wrote Dreamtime stories and I just the breadth of her work and the way in which she, tell stories through different formats. She wrote in We Are Going, there's an Aboriginal Charter of Rights, which is as relevant today as it was back in the 1960s. So I would say they were my two greatest influences. And I had the the good fortune of meeting both those amazing women and spent a lot of time with Annie Ruby Langford-Ginnerby when I was doing my PhD on Aboriginal literature and publishing. So they would be my two greatest influences today.
0: I must read the Ruby Langford. I've never read that one. And it sounds like an amazing
1: Well, interestingly, because it came out the same year as Sally Morgan's My Place, which went on to sell half a million copies, two women with two very different stories and it speaks volumes about the reading audience at the time because Ruby langford Ginnaby's work was very challenging to a white Australian audience. It was very hard life where Sally Morgan's story was really about someone finding their identity and she's done quite well and she's very talented and her children are very talented and done beautiful work as well. But they were two very different stories and Australians, I don't think, were ready for what Ruby langford Ginnaby had to say. And of course, we're in a different time now. And today we have a whole bevy of writers a stable of writers kicking goals and at the highest level winning awards you've got melissa lukashenko we've got alexis Wright and tara june winch we've got tony birch we've got jared thomas we've got ellen van neven we've got so many that's just like a handful so many writers across genres so that that inspire me also yeah, amazing.
0: Just getting on to the final two
1: questions, Anita, that I have for
0: you. The first is something that you do talk a bit about in your memoir, and that is about your definition of success. And I wanted to just be able for listeners to hear that, what your definition of success is and how you feel your writing has been a part of that.
1: Okay. I will say that my definition of success has probably changed over time. When you're an emerging writer, you want The success is getting published and getting reviewed and selling lots of books, but it has changed over time. A success to me is feeling that I've made a contribution to whatever the space that I am in, uh, a contribution to that space. If it means, it also means that I'm doing well in terms of my mental health, that I haven't totally destroyed my mental health trying to reach a goal, and my emotional well being is intact, and that there is joy in the experience so that's quite a lot of expectations but it is possible Mm -hmm. i think as i mentioned the older i get the more simplistic i've become in measuring success of course in terms of my writing i want to touch people through my storytelling and while i don't write for awards Obviously, it's wonderful to win, to get accolades from within the industry, but like publishing, judging is completely subjective. It's three people in a room or four people in a room and you and I could be in a room together and choose different winners. So I don't get upset about those things because I know it is subjective and I will say, however, that Billy Ada I think, has about five stickers on the front right now and I always get it's like a nice bottle of wine with all the things. Um <laughs> So I think I've had, and we've talked about Billa already, but success in that space wasn't so much about the awards, but it was about raising awareness around our imagery heroes and around language in that space. If I think about Titters, and I mentioned this earlier, I think that seeing my first play so well performed, so well executed, by extraordinary actors and so forth in a well-respected theatre with an amazing director and dramaturgs and with standing ovations. Like, for me, that was an incredible moment of success and possibly the one of the highlights of my professional career. Yeah, it
0: must have been amazing. Just finally, Anita, what would you say, and I kind of touched around this in a number of the different questions and things we've talked about, what would you say is at the heart of your writing?
1: Heart of my writing. One of the things I always autograph in my book often is, I hope this story speaks to your heart. So at the heart of my writing is a desire to touch the hearts and minds of readers in the hope that they think and see specifically First Nations peoples through a positive lens, through my lens. It's my lens. Everybody has a different lens. And my lens is looking through a lens of excellence, achievement, and also a lens of people having a right to place in the Australian narrative and world literature. Mm. So, so that was at the heart of my writing. Yeah, fabulous. It's
0: been so good to chat to you. And I know you're heading to Paris very soon. So did you say you're visiting a whole lot of libraries there? Well, I was looking
1: for, I'm going there to work on the new novel, but I need a strategy. A daily, you ask about the word count, I need a strategy. So I thought, I'll see how many public libraries are. So I just literally sent a tweet to some Paris account. So I'm looking for public libraries. They got back to me that day. With the link to the fifty nine public libraries, I go. Here's the strategy: I will I'll walk to as many as I can for exercise because I'm going to have lots of bread and cheese and croissants. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll and then I go. A thousand words is uh, normally I aim for more, but I think you know what? Fifty nine libraries, 59,000 59, words. That's my strategy. I'm actually going to be working on three different books while I'm there, some edits and so forth. So the words may not be the actual novel, but there will I'll make sure I aim for that. Every day, in okay. some way, shape, or form.
0: And are you going to be sharing that on social media?
1: I've just joined TikTok. Okay. are all the rom-com people are meant to be. I'm going to do my first TikTok, I think, at the airport when I fly out. So I've set up a TikTok account. Yeah, and it'll be I'll do things on Instagram. Yeah, and the hashtag will be Anita in Paris. Oh, Move I over Love, it. It. I love it's it. it. It's Anita <laughs> in Paris.
0: Fantastic. Have a fabulous thank time. Can't wait you to you see all. how it goes. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page, Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.